Good morning, and it's good to be together on this, the second Sunday in Lent. Our Lenten candle is again lit, and our call to worship is the second of Janet Morley's prayers for the season of Lent. Spirit of truth and judgment, who alone can exorcise the powers that grip our world, At the point of crisis, give us your discernment that we may accurately name what is evil and know the way that leads to peace. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning's first Bible reading is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. Verses 12 to 15. If you're following on a Pew Bible, you'll find this in the Old Testament section on page 176. Deuteronomy 5, from verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember, that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The second reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Reading from verse 1 to verse 15. Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search. And a time to give up. A time to keep. And a time to throw away. A time to tear. And a time to mend. A time to be silent. And a time to speak. A time to love. And a time to hate. A time for war. And a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? 
I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toils. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is, has already been. And what will be, has been before. And God will call the past to account. kind of hoping the power doesn't go off this week. It certainly made for an entertaining time last week. And so today, this is the last of our short series looking at different aspects of stewardship. We've thought about the gifts and skills with which we have each been blessed. We've thought about the attitudes that shape our lives. And we've thought a bit about the level and purpose of our financial giving. And now... Finally, we turn to the topic of time. It's very easy when we talk about time to do what we've just done and think of it pretty much as a commodity, something to be used. There is that um, rather kitsch saying, isn't there, that it's, it's like a bank and each, each day you're credited with 24 hours and you have to spend them and they're gone at the end of that 24 hours, whether you spend them well or don't spend them at all in one sense. But we've thought about how we use our time, how much time we're asleep, how much time we're eating, how much time we're working, how much time we're relaxing. And that's quite useful. It's useful to think how we use up our time. But it's also important to think about the quality of the time that we use. When I was in industry, it used to be said very often that every job expanded to fill the time available, which could mean different things for different people. But I suspect we all know that actually if there's not much to be done, we can still manage to fill a whole day up, busy doing not a lot. There is some kind of tension between quantity and quality And more is not always better. I used to work at one point, um, one of the people I worked for when I was on contract for Scottish Nuclear, he had this thing that he had to be in work before anybody else and he had to go home after everybody else because that was really important. But it didn't mean that he was any more effective than anybody else. He just needed to do the most work. Sometimes less can actually be better, and I have to remind myself of that one, because I have workaholic tendencies too. I think as we are pondering the idea of time, there are a couple of words in the Bible that are quite useful for us. Uh, The first one, they're both Greek words, I've been having a bit of a Greek word fest of late. The first one is chronos, the one from which we get our words chronological 
and chronometer, which is just a fancy name for a clock as far as I can understand. And it refers to the passage of time, the days, the hours, and the minutes that make up our lives. And the second word is kairos, which refers to the seasons and the moments in our lives. It carries with it a sense of rhythm, the ongoing rhythm of time in our lives, but also it's used quite often in Christian circles for moments of divine, or glimpses of divine activity in a special way. It's not that God is only active in the Kairos moments, but somehow Kairos moments are those when we especially realize that God is at work in a special way. And of course those two go together. Times and seasons and hours and minutes, they kind of all connect. Our special spiritual experience and our ordinary everyday lives, they go together. They can't be separated completely and neither should they. But these two words can be helpful for us in our thinking about time. I'm not going to push them too far, but hold those at the back of your mind as we go through these thoughts this morning. I wonder what your experience is of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not exactly the most jolly book in the Bible, if you read it. The person who narrates it, the teacher, is a real pessimist. In fact, I have a sneaking suspicion that Eeyore wrote Ecclesiastes, because Eeyore is a character who always sees problems. Eeyore would look at a clear blue sky and go, rain later. In fact, maybe Eeyore comes from the west of Scotland and has a pay-for-it-later outlook on life. I don't fully understand that concept yet, but I'm learning. And yet, in this book, with all its doom and gloom and pessimism, are some absolute gems, such as the passage that we heard read for us this morning, that reminds us about how the rhythm of season of life go on, and how somehow joy and sorrow, success and failure are all intertwined. There's something very honest about that writing. It doesn't try to explain away the incongruity of life experiences, it just says, you know, this is how life is. It has good bits and it has bad bits. There is birth, there's death. There is building up, there is tearing down. Rhythm and a pattern in life if all these things happen. And it's perhaps useful to think about of seasons. Of course, I say a moment and that's when it's really difficult. Time words. You have to try think about seasons as they affect our lives individually and how they affect our life as a church. What that season is for each one of us, like others, there is definitely a recognition that lives have seasons, and that each season has its own flavour to it. I can't remember Shakespeare's Seven Ages, but there's something about the schoolboy that goes off to school dragging his satchel behind him because he doesn't want to go, and there's, I think it's a mewling baby or something. All different ages have different themes to them clicking now. We do well to recognize the season that we're in, each of us. For some of us, it's a season of new beginnings. For others, it's an ongoing season of, of um, doing what we do. For others, it's a time to lay things down. 
God has each one of us in our own season, and God is actually with us in those seasons. Just as from morning until night God is with us, so through the whole of life and all the changing seasons. There is God at the heart of that, with us, supporting us, encouraging us. So what is the season for Hillhead Baptist Church at the moment? For what aspect of our life and witness is this a time of new beginnings or a time of building up? And for what aspects is it a time of endings or a time of tearing down? What are the new things that are being born in our life together? And what are the old things that we have to allow to die because their season is past? How do we hold together this balance of gathering in and scattering, of laughing and weeping? For me, it's a really exciting time in our church. A time when it seems that the dream of a new 21st century trist might begin to take shape, might become a reality. And I can see the buds of new endeavours beginning to come into bloom in all sorts of exciting and wonderful ways. But I'm also seeing that some of the flowers of past seasons are fading and must be allowed to fade. And the seeds of the past harvest replanted so that new, fresh expressions of the same good things can happen. There are beginnings and endings at the moment. There is joy and, yes, there is sorrow. There is building, literally, and there will be tearing down, literally, as God leads us on into a new season that is upon us. We need to recognise the seasons we are in individually and corporately. Thinking again about when I was in industry, I used to have to produce work plans for my staff, sometimes for small jobs, sometimes for big jobs. And simply saying that this job would take six weeks or two months or five years, I had a few five-year plans on my wall, they were quite impressive. It wasn't good enough just to say this job will take five years or six months or two weeks or whatever it was. I needed to break it down into chunks that were manageable, put in the interim target dates and the review points. I needed to reflect that sometimes things slipped. Sometimes they finished early, but not very often. They were far more likely to slip a bit. We needed inputs from other people or other companies. And it needed to recognize that people were entitled to have a holiday Something the guy who always came in early and went late never quite grasped. There we go, that's another story. Just because a job would take six weeks' work didn't mean it could be programmed into six weeks because there was inputs to come from other people and people had their their holidays that they were entitled to. The rhythms of our working practice had to reflect that people had time off as well as time at work. And actually, we needed time to review what we were doing, pauses to rest and pauses to reflect and review if it was going to go on. 
those of you who work in industry and in school and anywhere will be familiar with that kind of thing. Whatever work we're doing, we have to build in all these things. There's nothing clever about it. As I've thought about it again over the last couple of weeks, I actually began to see that some of the biblical principles sneak in there and shape the way we think about it. Especially the biblical concept of the Sabbath or the Shabbat, the day of rest. The Genesis 1 story of creation is the one that concludes with God resting. Genesis 2's creation story doesn't. They're very different stories for very different purposes. And it wasn't that God was tired after all that work of creating, and God didn't work nine to five or anything that we might like to impose upon God. God rested because he was an important principle about taking time to be still and time to reflect. We can tie ourselves into all kinds of knots with Genesis 1 and 2 as we try to make sense of it all and, and connect it up. And, and we miss the point. The point of that story is that God is behind creativity and creativity is declared good. And God is behind rest, which is also declared good. And there is a time for each of those, a time to be busy and a time to be still. It is in Exodus and Deuteronomy that we read the accounts of the so-called Ten Commandments. There are actually at least 14 in there, but we won't worry too much about that. And within those are the rules for the Sabbath, the day in which nobody does any work. Not your servants, so I hope you've all given your servants the day off. Not your animals, so I hope you've all given your cars the day off. The Sabbath is to be kept holy. It's a day to be set apart for God. In our day and age, of course, there are lots of tensions about the nature of the Sabbath. There is this sort of sense that, that nobody should work on Sundays, because that's the day we keep our Sabbath. But we're all very glad that the lights are on this morning, and the heat's on, which means people have had to work. We're all glad that we've got gas to cook our dinner on and clean water. And that somebody's getting their gas to our houses and somebody's looking after the water. And I was kind of joking when I said about giving our cars a rest because I know there are people who need their cars to get to church or on the train or on the bus. And somebody has to drive the trains and the buses. If we were good Jews, which we're not, but if we were, we would be constrained by the idea of the Sabbath walk. It's not actually something that's recorded in Scripture, but it's something that by Jesus' time was standard practice. On the Sabbath, the people taught that you were only allowed to walk so far, about three quarters of a mile. That would mean I couldn't get to church, never mind to get home again. But actually, there's something more going on here than the letter of the law. It's about a principle, a principle of rest. It's not, dare I say, tied to a specific day of the week, because if it was, we should have all come yesterday, because actually Saturday 
was the original Sabbath. The Jewish Saturday is Saturday. It's about having a routine for relaxation and refreshment, about having regular patterns for prayer and devotion as part of our lives. So what does that mean for us? Well, obviously, Sunday worship is really important. We're all here, which is good. Otherwise, I'd look very silly talking to an empty room. And it should be really high on our list of priorities, not something we only do when we don't get a better offer. But then I don't really need to say that to you because you're all here. It's the people who've gone doing something else because they've got a better offer that perhaps need to hear that. But it also says something to us about what happens in our Sunday worship. It needs to give us some time and some space to slow down, to relax in God's embrace, to be refreshed by God's spirit for the service to which each of us is called. And that seems to me to mean quite a few things. Having rotors for all the different duties is really important. And I'm really thrilled that we have people who will read, people who steward, people who make the tea, people who put out the chairs, people who put the chairs away, again, people who bring our music. But we also need Sundays, and plenty of them, when we can actually sit and be, be still, rather than be thinking, have I got the milk, have I got the biscuits, have I got da 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 And there are actually people who are here more Sundays than I am. I have to be here, well, it's 52 less 9, 43 Sundays a year I'm required to be here according to my contract. I have a feeling that Paul's probably here 51 and a half Sundays a year. (laughs) It feels like it. Anyway, I don't think he's had a Sunday off since I've been here, apart from one when he was sick and he felt very guilty about it. And there will be other people who are here 52 weeks a year. All I want to say is it's okay to have the odd Sunday off from church. Sometimes we need a space to be able to go somewhere else, not just because we're on holiday, but because we're exhausted. I'll use the polite Sunday word for it. We need a rest sometimes just to be. Maybe sometimes we need to be thinking, is it more or less Sunday church that I should be doing? I have to say that my Sabbath doesn't happen on a Sunday. This is a working day for me. Baptist ministers have a six-day contract, six days to work and one day off. They're very biblical. Usually, we call that a day off. And usually, I take it on a Monday, but at the moment, for various reasons, I'm taking it on a Friday. And somebody said to me recently, we'll have a good rest day. And that really spoke to me because... A rest day seems somehow different from a day off. A day off just means I don't do work. But a rest day says, now put your feet up, missus, and take a rest. And I suspect there are other people like me who need to hear that. We need time to rest. But what about stewardship? Where does anything that I've said so far connect with that? We've thought about having seasons in our lives. We've thought about the need for the Sabbath, for the rest. But what about stewardship in relation to our time? Just quite briefly, I want to share with you an idea I've played with on and off for a number of years, 
which takes us back to the idea of time as a commodity, something we can spend, if you like. We choose how we use it. And I wondered, what if we take the idea of the Sabbath, a full day out, and the idea of tithing, which is often used in relation to money and possessions, and apply those to our time? There are 168 hours in a week. I know this well because it used to do, just be very important in all the sums I used to do in statistical risk assessment. How many days in a week? How many days in a year? 168 hours in a week. So we take 24 of those off for a Sabbath. That's our time purely for rest and refreshment, which leaves us 144 hours. Now let's just suppose that we take seriously the idea of tithing and say that 10% of that 144 is employed in God's service. So that's roughly, to keep the sum simple, just, just under 15 hours a week, 14.4 hours a week, but let's say 15. And now let's say that you've allowed five of those to sleep because roughly a third of our time is spent to sleep. So 10 hours consciously used for our devotional life and our Christian service a week. How do we use that? Well, Sunday worship, by the time you've got here and got away again, is probably, for most people, around two hours. Some people here, I know it's nearer four, but let's say around about two hours on a Sunday. That still leaves us eight hours. Let's suppose now we take around about half an hour per day, excluding Sunday, for our private, personal, devotional time. Bible reading, prayer, whatever. Some people may choose to do more, that's fine. But let's say half an hour per working day as a target. That's three hours. So that takes us five hours off of our ten. That leaves us another five hours a week that could be used in God's service. And what if we gave two and a half of those hours inside church in one way or another and two and a half of those hours outside church in voluntary work or charitable work would that be something we could think about and what difference would it make to our church and to our community and to the wider world if we all did that Some may choose to do more, that's fine. But if we could each say, I will give two and a half hours a week to church, and I will give two and a half hours a week, on average, to charitable work or voluntary work, just think of the enormous impact that could have. Not saying we've got to do it, it's just an idea to play about with. Time to specifically worship and do devotional things, and time for service. Stewardship is about our whole lives. And how we work it out is going to be a bit different for all of us. It's really easy, and it's wrong, to constrict stewardship to our money. I think that's one of the dangers that we so readily fall into. We think it's all about our money. Actually, it's not. It's about the whole of our lives. It's about our our attitudes, our love, our hearts. It's about our abilities, the gifts and skills that we've got, 
And it's about our time and how we use our time. And if we hold all those together, the gifts and skills we each have, the time we have to use, the money we have to spend, and the attitudes of our hearts, then surely we can be even more effective in extending Christ's kingdom and the good news of Jesus. Our prayers of intercession this morning are built around some of the themes from the reading in Ecclesiastes. So let's pray together. Lord God of all times and seasons, intimately involved in every aspect of human life from our conception to our dying, we pause to bring you our prayers for the world, for the church and for ourselves. A time to be born and a time to die. We recognise that the natural cycles of life bring with them a blend of joy and sorrow. We bring to you those we know who are grieving the death of a loved one and those for whom bereavement brings only emptiness or numbness. We pray that each will find a healthy outlet for their emotion and the strength to continue to live courageously. We bring to you those we know who are rejoicing in the gift of new life Babies on the way and babies newly arrived. And we pray for those for whom parenthood brings only anxiety, depression or regret. The nurture of children is a demanding responsibility. And we pray for all entrusted with the care of children. (coughs) That you will give them the love and confidence to face the challenges it brings. A time to plant and a time to uproot. We bring to you those whose lives seem to be an endless round of upheaval. Refugees and asylum seekers the world over who travel in hope of a brighter future. But all too often experience exploitation, violence or rejection. Grant compassion and wisdom to those who make decisions on the granting or refusal of asylum or residency so that all are treated with dignity and courtesy, whatever the outcome may be. A time to tear down and a time to build. We bring to you all involved in rebuilding communities affected by war, civil unrest or natural disaster. Especially at this time, we pray for those in Haiti, now almost vanished from the news broadcasts, as they seek to begin to build new lives following the recent earthquake. Give skills to the workers and wisdom to the organisers so that new homes and new communities may be places of joy and hope. And as news breaks of yet another earthquake, this time in Chile, we pray for all who are and will be involved in rescue and recovery work in that nation. A time to search and a time to give up. 
We pray for all who are seeking meaning for their lives, especially for those in the materialistic, secularised West who have so much and yet attempted to seek fulfilment in dangerous activities or unhealthy practices. We pray for all who seek meaning and purpose, for those who recognise their inner spiritual yearnings, but as yet know nothing of your love revealed in Jesus Christ. Show us the part we must play in supporting and encouraging others in their search for meaning and truth. A time to be silent and a time to speak. We pray for all whose work centres on words, written or spoken, for politicians and leaders of powerful organisations, that they may speak boldly for truth and justice. For journalists and commentators, that they avoid the beguiling lure of sensationalism, gossip and titillation. For preachers and teachers, that they would avoid the trap of pleasing their hearers, instead offering carefully considered responses to complex topics. A time for war and a time for peace. We pray for peace, not just absence of war. As we call to mind the many areas of the world where war continues, sometimes perversely claiming to be the pursuit of peace, we pray for all whose lives are caught up in conflict for civilian and military personnel alike, living with uncertainty and fear, knowing that each day may end in tragedy. We pray for your compassionate protection, an end to violence, and a gift of peace. Lord God, beyond time, yet present in every season of human experience, Accept our prayers, which we bring in Jesus' name. Amen.